on the job with Francis Leach and Sally Rugg. On the job, the podcast all about making your working life better. My name is Francis Leach. My name is Sally Rugg, and we're really happy to be here on the job. (laughs) (laughs) On the job, on the podcast, on the job. As we know, I'm a major political nerd, political enthusiast. And yeah, there's just been a lot of politics around recently. I'm really looking forward to the new ICAC that's about to drop. Some people look forward to the new Beyonce album. You're looking forward to ICAC hearings. Yeah, I can't wait. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, we don't have to sort of talk about Gladys for too long. I think she was like quite a competent premier. It's a shame that she might get done for doing corruption, we will wait and see what the hearings say. So it's it's less a sort of a rejoicing in the toppling of a, a competent leader and more in the sort of the fact that I enjoy ICAC hearings. I think it would be really cool if we had an ICAC that looked at the federal government. What do you think, Francis? I think given that it's something you really wish for, you put that on your Christmas list and you never know. Like Santa <laughs> might deliver you a federal ICAC for Christmas. I just feel like there's been several instances where, you know, it's been exposed that Scott Morrison's coalition government is like, oh, I don't know, like giving marginal communities heaps of money for sports clubs and car parks, um, marginal electorates, I should say. And, you know, when you look at all the numbers on a colour-coded spreadsheet, it certainly looks like you know, bribing the electorate with political favours and funding. I mean, it certainly looks like that and it would just be really cool to just, like, have that investigated. You don't, you don't need Netflix. By a federal body. You don't need Netflix or Amazon Prime or Apple Plus TV. What you want is <laughs> federal ICAC hearings. And I can imagine the blockbuster series would probably start, if you were going to lead off with your best, I'm tipping an inquiry into who forged uh, Clover Moore's travel costs would be right up there. That would be, that would be like the Sopranos. Oh, yeah. That would be the Sopranos of ICAC hearings. Then maybe coming in a close second, maybe sports rorts or maybe the empty suit Angus mm-hmm. Taylor gets a double and we also look at his uh, his water rights sell-off which was as dodgy as it comes as well so he, he could be like the James Gandolfini of, of uh, federal ICAC is like the the, num- the numero uno character actor because he'd be in everything mm. I want to know who gave former Attorney General Christian Porter a million dollars. There you go. Who was it? (laughs) (laughs) Let's come on. Let's have you. Um, Yeah, there's, you know, just like so much juicy content (laughs) Um, and also very important accountability to be had. So, yeah. That's the sort Um, of reality TV that you and I can get into. (laughs) Exactly. The sort of reality so, yeah, it's been a great week of politics. Looking forward to some ICAC. Wish there was a broader ICAC to cover um, the most powerful politicians in our country. But, um, yeah, hopefully that'll be forthcoming. Yeah, we're going to try and make sure it is because in more serious terms, it's absolutely necessary as the last seven or eight years have shown us uh, federally and elsewhere. Hey, on this week's podcast, though, uh, a really important guest because Sharon Burrow is a legend of the Australian Union movement and she's also, Sally, uh, 
at the very head, at the very top of the international uh, labour movement and the International Trade Union Confederation. And um, we were lucky enough to have a chat with her just uh, earlier in the week about some of the work that she's doing on uh, World Decent Work Day, which happened last Thursday. Some really ambitious goals and sort of aims that she and the International Trade Union Confederation is leading. And it was really exciting to hear the the plan to create millions of jobs and in what sectors they'll be and some really compelling stuff. I loved this conversation. Let's hear it now. This is Sharon Burrow with Sally and I. She's uh, just got up the other morning at her place in Brussels in Belgium uh, and we gave her a call to have a chat about World Decent Workday. On the Job with Francis Leach and Sally Rugg. Sharon, welcome to On The Job. How are you? How's life in Brussels? Well, unlike you guys looking forward to spring and summer, it's actually, uh, well, it's sunny today, but it's been very bleak and we suddenly had that dip in the cold. I don't like it. (laughs) I would rather be in Australia. Yeah, I mean, we've just started daylight savings in Australia, which is pretty special because it's going to be daylight until quite late in the evening. But what time is it getting dark over there now, like 5 o'clock? No, not quite that early, but if you're walking home after six from the office, it's really that deep twilight and it will keep coming back. This is not bad, but in another month, I will really want to be in Australia. Well, I actually really want to be in Australia now because I haven't been there for two years, but, you know. (laughs) Seems like a long time for all of us. Two years ago feels like literally a lifetime away. Hey, the reason why we've got you on in your busy work schedule uh, is to talk about World Day for Decent Work, which is in its 10th year. This podcast goes to air on uh, Monday, but uh, this will be referring back to the day we record, which is on the Thursday, which is the t- today, the 7th of October. Tell us about <laughs> the origins of, of World Day for Decent Work and what it actually stands for. Well, if you go back... 10 years, 11 actually, then the Global uh, Council, the General Council of the ITUC, had this huge debate about how we were very concerned about the lack of attention to jobs, quality jobs. We were really worried that governments had lost focus on full employment and that, in fact, uh, the jobs that we were seeing emerging were not secure They didn't always respect rights. We were seeing increasing exploitation around the world. So precarity or insecure jobs, the whole question about, you know, pay and just wages, minimum living wages, but but indeed uh, collective bargaining to share prosperity. And workers were genuinely starting to feel what we now know is palpable, which is the despair that's now generating anger around the world because people don't feel that trust in knowing that they have a secure job, they can raise their family, they can live with dignity. And it really resulted from the 1980s when the social contract started to break down because with hyper-globalisation, we've seen in that, uh, you know, barely 40 years that in fact labour income share has gone down like a roller coaster, um, despite the fact that the world is richer by, you know, three or four times in GDP terms, and that people are feeling more and more insecure. That's not a recipe for trust 
in anything, but particularly trust in our democracies. So that general counsel said, well, let's expose our demand for jobs, for decent work to the world. And October 7 was the date chosen. And here we are, 10 years from uh, the first World Day for Decent Work. And indeed, you will see activities today all around the world. But I'd like to talk to you about our jobs plans. I can see from the jobs plans, the sort of social media I've seen today for World Day for Decent Work, the campaign is calling for millions of millions of jobs, 575 million jobs. Tell us about those jobs. Where are they coming from? Who's going to be doing these jobs and and what are they going to be producing? So in 2015, the world's leaders made a promise to people. It was, in fact, a year where we saw two promises that intersect. One was the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, and they go to questions of poverty and social security or social protection and indeed go to equality and sustainability. But they equally have a goal eight. SDG eight is about full employment and decent work. So we've set a jobs target to return the world to full employment. And when you look at what that would take, then for those, uh, you know, econometric folk amongst you, We've taken the global figure of 75% of participation because that's what would get us to full employment. In Europe, they set it at 79, but the world figure is 75%. That would mean 575 million new jobs have to be created by uh, 2030. So where are they going to come from? Well, we know the answers. Because if you take that other promise of the Paris Agreement and indeed, you know, to keep the world around 1.5 degrees warming so that we could stabilise the planet, then we know for every dollar invested in climate transition, you get jobs. We've also just been through a pandemic and we've seen the underfunding of healthcare, of education, of aged care, of childcare. If you invest in care, which is again at the heart of the security of our communities, it's our solidarity with each other to live decent lives and to have the opportunity of education, then we can invest in care. This is indeed as we build a recovery that is both just and and indeed uh, resilient, then the Resilience Foundation requires us to invest in vital public services in care, and of course, in broader social protection, where people themselves have uh, the security of knowing that they have income support, as well as other measures. So 575 million new jobs is not such a stretch, because I can tell you right now that uh, 80 million jobs deficit exists in education alone around the world. I can tell you that you can at least get to the same when you look at the deficits in care and you expand care. And if we don't expand care, we'll never reach another target, which is the majority of those jobs have to be for women because women's participation has fallen so dramatically and even more so during the pandemic of the, you know, 80 million or so people who just left the labour market, didn't just lose their jobs, left the labour market. The majority were women. They gave up 
in despair. So when you consider the impact of women through the pandemic, they lost about $800 billion in income. If you think about that, that's the combined GDP of about 98 countries. So when you put all this together, we know the jobs are there, and that's without the climate transition. When you go to the climate transition, for every 10 jobs in renewable energy, there's 5 to 10 in supply chains. If they're good jobs, if it's decent work with just wages, in fact, you can generate then 30 to 35 jobs in the broader economy. And you start that virtuous circle of people being able to uh, keep their communities and their economies alive. So we're very confident. But, you know, I have some really good news because the UN Secretary General has weighed in behind us. He supports our new social contract, which is five demands, of course, jobs, rights, uh, um, social protection, equality of income, gender and race and inclusion. But he not only supports a new social contract, he actually supports now what they're calling the global accelerator. And it's about jobs and indeed social protection with just transition, which of course is our demand for the climate transition. So if we can then get all the other institutions in the world and governments to hear our voice for one simple thing, a jobs plan negotiated with the unions, with employers, if you like, in a tripartite setting, but certainly a jobs plan that gives people hope and trust, we will move the cause of decent work forward. Can I ask you about that? Because it seems to me that we're in a fork in a road here at the end of, you know, a generational crisis. And there are two ways we can go. There can the way that You've just outlined there, which I think is in some ways emblematic of what, say, the Biden plan in the United States is trying to achieve. But on the other side of that also will be the crisis capitalists who will see this as an opportunity, what's happened in the last couple of years, to reinforce a monetarist approach to this, to once again consolidating wealth and power within the very few and try to sell trickle-down economics as, as the only way forward for those who are currently without. Is that a wrestle that's going on at the moment and how do we win that argument? Absolutely. I mean, the, the trickle-down model has failed. It simply failed. The global economy has failed people everywhere and itself is in trouble. There are cracks in every nation and even before the pandemic, we had a, a crisis of uh, convergence across inequality and that meant unemployment, it meant the loss of wages and income share, it meant dehumanising exploitation in our supply chains, the model of globalisation had failed. And except, of course, as you say, for the very few at the top of the, 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 the ladder. But then we had the climate crisis and it was costing people's lives and livelihoods. It was costing extraordinary amounts of money. And indeed, it's rendering much of our, um, of, of our society for working people uninsurable if you live in those vulnerable areas. So in this con context, you already had that crisis. And then, of course, the pandemic exposed those fractures dramatically. So now we can see that nations are indeed not able to depend on this myth of the trickle-down theory of the dominant wealthy nations. And I only have to say to you vaccine nationalism and the fact that... Uh, Africa and Latin America and Asia are lagging behind in too many of the poorer countries 
and you understand why globalisation doesn't work. So it has to be reformed. We need to actually depend on each other in a global context. That's true. So it's not that we're against trade or against a global framework, but we don't want this one. We actually want a model where people and planet are at the heart of a just recovery and building that foundation of resilience. Jobs are the core of that. Decent work means rights, and that's at the core of it. And we want to end corporate impunity with a legislative mandate for due diligence, for grievance procedures at all levels, and indeed for remedy that builds trust in decent work once again. But it starts with those jobs plans. And you're right, the US actually gave people hope that you could look at both climate transition and it had to mean jobs. And the South African jobs plan negotiated with the unions uh, and the employers is actually another element of hope. The unions aren't quite satisfied with it yet. They'll keep fighting to increase it, but it's there as a flaw just as the UN Secretary-General's commitment to fight for 400 jobs with governments and unions and civil society, 400 million jobs, I should say, not quite our target, but we'll take it as a first step. So when you think about focusing the world on, on jobs, on rights, on social protection, on equality, on an inclusive future where everybody matters, then this World Day for Decent Work is very, very significant. So 10 years on, we've got the agenda on the table. Now we have to win the battle. I'm really interested in, in the battle because this is my, this is my sort of, um, yeah, my special interest and my day job. What, what does um, the International Trade Union Confederation have up its sleeve um, in getting these commitments adopted. Um, and, and how do you see it going in Australia? Well, unions are on the front lines of any struggle for decent work. It's always been the, the case. It will always be the case. It's our core mandate as a movement to actually improve the, the lives of working people and their families. So social justice is at the heart of this demand. Unions will fight and jobs in Australia are on the agenda. I've seen your fight for secure work. I've looked at your fight for employment. Um, and indeed, I know that you've worked on a jobs plan with jobs demands. And we've had Michelle and Sally talk about that to the global movement. The other Sally, the, the better Sally. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Sally that's got perhaps just a little more power in this fight right now. But we couldn't <laughs> exactly. do it without you, Sally, because without our campaigners, we don't have the strategy and, the, uh, and indeed the, the ideas to bring people into a movement to fight for their own future. So I pay tribute to both Sallys in this, uh, <laughs> in this context. And, of course, Michelle is the representative on our global uh, council. And Michelle has a lot of international experience, as you know, in previous jobs. So, you know, her understanding of how we build global campaigns is, uh, is really critical. But, you know, I'm proud of the Australian Labor Movement. You will always fight to include people. You'll always fight against the elements that actually exclude people, whether it's unemployment, whether it's unfair wages, whether it's racism, 
whether it's, you know, just injustice generally. And that's the way we'll win this fight. I'm convinced if we can get unions to have jobs plans, and we'll help them, of course. I have some of uh, the best uh, people in a team that can actually help with the the basket of goods for decent uh, minimum wages, can help with, um, you know, assisting in training people around uh, collective bargaining because even though Australians have a lot of experience in collective bargaining, I can tell you in most of the world where informality dominates, and I come to that deliberately, then collective bargaining doesn't exist. So you have to put the floor back under people with jobs and social protection. But we won't meet that jobs target if we also don't formalise at least a billion jobs by 2030 because there's two billion men and women in our world, our brothers and sisters, who are actually working in a sector of despair, in informality, no rights, no minimum wage, no rule of law. Yeah, we're seeing that increasingly even in a wealthy country like Australia where 30% of the workforce now is what we would call insecure work, which which suits a lot of employers because, as you said, uh, the, the workers take on all the risk and all, and all the cost. Um, it's a fight that we're having here within the Australian Union movement. How hard is it in other countries where the economy maybe doesn't have the same checks and balances and regulation as a wealthy uh, and a country like Australia with strong institutions? How hard is it to fight against that informal economy and to give those workers that sense of permanence and security? You know, it's not such a hard recipe, really. If you think about the global labour market, it's broken. We have 60% on average, or those 2 billion people, working in informal work. We then have 40% in the formal sector, some form of employment contract. But as you said, Francis, there's a third of those in insecure or precarious work. So what does it take to formalise jobs, to give that security? It takes a secure contract of employment. And that's, of course, got to be uh, the choice of the individual. What is their working hours they want to uh, want to be involved in? Most jobs should be full-time, but others, if you've got, uh, you know, family responsibilities might be part-time, but they need to be secure. And what we're seeing in all countries, including the wealthy countries, is the new and emerging forms of work, platform businesses, internet-mediated jobs, they're actually informal jobs. As you said, they put the costs of everything on the individual. And, of course, they don't guarantee a minimum income at all. So the, the recipe is quite simple. You need, indeed, a minimum wage that you can live on or a minimum income. And I'll come back to that and why that's important. And you need, of course, universal social protection. If you have that and you have what the centenary declaration of the ILO guarantees, for all workers, which was negotiated between employers, between workers and, of course, governments, is that decent work has to have four elements. It has to have, of course, fundamental rights, which includes freedom of association and collective bargaining. It has to have uh, occupational health and safety, and we're fighting for that as a fundamental right now, and we hope to deliver that through the ILO next year. And it has to have... Um, a minimum living wage, and it has to have uh, some control over working hours for all jobs. Now, if you do that, you have formal work. So governments have to reinvest in regulating the labour market. 
And that doesn't mean we won't have a diversity of employment. We will, and increasingly so. But if you think about unions that have the answers, talk to the entertainment union. They can tell you how you can bargain um, in your world, it's equity, but you know, if you can talk to OMIA, but if you talk to these unions and they'll tell you how you actually can um, bargain for a minimum contract in, uh, rate, then you can build secure work. You can build formal work. And if that's married with universal social protection, then people have that resilience base. So when you talk about minimum incomes, increasingly we're going to have to have a look at what's the intersection between a minimum living wage and social protection to see that no one's stranded, no one's left behind. Sharon, how does the the movement more globally deal with the concept of the universal basic income, which is another theory, a more radical theory, that approaches income inequality by the idea of providing people with base level income regardless of what they do? What is the position on that and where does work fit into that and, and the importance of work in people's lives? So let me start with by saying I don't think unions and working people who are make up our movement will ever give up on the dignity of decent work. That's been our mandate as trade unions forever. Does that mean that we uh, ignore people who don't have decent work? No. So for, for the trade unions, we've always fought for a minimum income and it's called social protection. Now, are those rates high enough? No. Should we have social protection that is at the level of, uh, of a, a, an income on which you can live and raise a family with dignity? Absolutely. So as we look at a world where we need to secure at least a minimum living wage or income for working people, we're going to have to look at the intersection of social protection, the income component, and indeed the wage. Now, we have to be careful here because that shouldn't be a recipe to let employers off the hook for paying a minimum living wage. But it should recognise that to build security in many of uh, particularly those informal jobs, we need a bridge to that formal work. So when people say we want a universal basic income, it sounds like utopia. And I say back to them, excuse me, why should I get a universal basic income when I have a wage on which I can live with dignity? I want the solidarity of our tax base to ensure that everybody has security, at least at a, a wage or an income they can live on with dignity. Do we have all the answers? No. And I'm working now with our amazing CEWA the Indian Self-Employed Women's Association, to figure out in each of their informal sectors how we formalise a minimum living income and, of course, social protection. And that will get us the security of formality we need as a floor. And so for um, folks listening along to this conversation and are feeling really passionate about the proposal that you're promoting on World Day for Decent Work and they don't want to have to wait until October the 7th next year, what's something that our listeners can do to help with the campaign or spread the word or change they can make in their workplace? So for union members, 
indeed for all workers, join the ACTU campaign. We are fighting for jobs. We know governments, in our view, have just one job, and that's the justice of having the dignity of decent work. They must pay attention and commit to building full employment with unions, with employers, and they must regulate the labour market. If we allow people to escape the dignity of a floor of wages and social protection, then um, of just wages, I should say, and social protection, then we are saying that we're prepared to let parts of our society simply fall into this despair. That's not the Australia I know, and it's not what the union movement fights for every day. So that jobs plan, demanding governments pay attention, you've got an election coming up at the federal level, and I'm certain that jobs will feature in your demands for politicians who want to be elected and serve the interests of the people that elect them. We can't stand back and let, you know, governments any longer deny that people and the planet ought to be at the centre of the way we think about a future and the justice of decent work, of full employment sits at the heart of that. So I'm confident this will be a campaign unions will fight for everywhere. We will all the way and every day. Sharon Burrow, it's been a great privilege to have you on the job. We wish you all the very best there in Brussels and hopefully we'll speak to you soon. Lovely to talk to you and I wish I was there in the sunshine. Oh, we wish too. Thanks, Sharon. <laughs> Sharon Burrow there from the International Trade Union Confederation talking to us from Brussels about World Decent Workday. It's 11th edition of that on Thursday, the 7th of October, just gone past. And uh, yeah, a wonderful initiative, an important initiative to put the idea of permanent, secure, decent jobs on the agenda as a social justice issue, as an environmental issue, as an economic issue. And uh, it's worth fighting for, Sally. Yeah, absolutely. I love an ambitious plan. I love some bold goals. And I think the work of the the Confederation is a really great sort of North Star for trade union movements around the world and, and also, you know, other decision-making bodies. So, yeah, it was great. And we might try and uh, touch base with uh, Sharon again ahead of COP26, the big uh, uh, talk that's going to be happening in Glasgow around uh, climate change in the next couple of weeks because she will be attending on behalf of the international union movement to give her perspective there as well. Sally, thanks again for another great edition of On The Job. We can follow you at Sally Rugg on the socials. Um, I'm Ned St. Frankly. Uh, what else can we say? Oh, guess what I've done? Tell me. I've set up a, a, an email address for us so that if anyone wants to send us a message or a story idea or uh, contribute some ideas, OTJ Podcast, OTJ Podcast at protonmail.com. OTJ Podcast at protonmail.com. Oh, protonmail, very secure. If you want to blow the whistle on your dodgy employer, well, I mean, if you you should contact your union, to be honest, <laughs> Francis and I. I don't think we have we're we're not quite as set up. But you should con- if you want to contact us, we'll help you contact your union. <laughs> That's it. We'll do that. Or do do both. Just do both. You know, just CC us in on Pro- OTJ Podcast at protonmail.com. and uh, give us a review on your platform of choice so that people can find us. Uh, we love your reviews. Please send them through. And Sally, we'll catch you next week on the job. Catch you then. Bye.